Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Langston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, and today I have the privilege of speaking with Ray Zahab. Ray is a Canadian adventurer, ultra-distance runner, and founder of the nonprofit Impossible to Possible. A recent recipient of the Notorious Service Cross of Canada, Ray is an explorer in residence of the Royal Canadian Geographic Society and a fellow of the Royal Geographic Society. In 2015, Canadian Geographic recognized Ray as one of Canada's top explorers. He's run 14,000 kilometers across the world's deserts and completed multiple unsupported expeditions in some of the coolest places on the planet. Of note, on September 1st, 2006, the former pack-a-day smoker turned ultra runner and two friends, Charlie Engel and Kevin Lynn, set out on an expedition to cross the Sahara Desert by foot. 111 days and 7,500 kilometers after leaving the coast of Senegal, Africa, they completed their journey by stepping into the Red Sea. National Geographic tracked the expedition by web, as well as the documentary film Running the Sahara, produced by Matt Damon and directed by Academy Award winner James Ball, was created in an effort to raise awareness for the drinking water crisis in North Africa. In 2008, Ray founded Impossible to Possible, an organization that aims to inspire and educate youth through adventure learning, inclusion, and participation in expeditions. He has and is indeed leading his mark on this planet, and I'm honored to have him with me today. Welcome, Ray. Wow, that's like he sounds like like a really long obituary or something. What the heck, right? Well, you sent me your uh, your web page, and certainly, you know, you've got to do uh, justice to some of the work that you've done in your life when you put these things together. But uh, I started reading; <laughs> I got tired just reading the list of things you've done. <laughs> you've done from a- well, you know, it's it's uh, it's funny. I turned I turned fifty this year, right? I turned fifty this year. People ask me all the time they're like you know do do you look back at the stuff you've done and I said no I'm always focused on what's in front of me I try not to like I mean I've got these whatever you know like I have a Guinness record I have a uh you know various awards and stuff they're all tucked away in a filing cabinet they're not hanging on a wall I don't want to look at it because I don't want to think that I've got it all figured out or that I'm done yet right and so I save all this stuff for my for my daughters, but pretty much, I mean, I'm, I'm always looking, I'm looking at what's in front of me, you mm-hmm. know, rather than spending so much time in the past. I mean, cause I've said this so many times, Scott, you got one kick at the camp, you know, you get one chance, like one life. Mm-hmm. And we live in a time when everything is so instantaneous and social media, you know, uh, it gives uh, uh, this, this false narrative of what a perfect life is supposed to be. 
mm-hmm. and a false narrative of the things you're supposed to be doing every day. And you're supposed to look this way and you're supposed to, you know, mm-hmm. and in real life, it just, it kind of doesn't work out that way. Right. And so you just, you got to eat, you go for what you do, what you want to do. You find your passion and, and you go after that and, 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 and you make that your life's focus. Cause how many times, how many years are we on this planet? What's the average? You're the fitness guy. What? Like, like 75 years or something, 80 it's, years. It's, it's risen, but it's still, still short when, when you get down to the ground level of it, for sure. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I mean, exactly. you know, that's not, that's not a long time to do yeah. stuff. And I didn't really start, you know, living and, 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 you know, being cranked up on being passionate about stuff until I was 30. So that's like, you know, at least a third of it gone, you know? So anyhow. <laughs> well, t- tell me about that. I want to know about that journey too, because this is all part of the process. Like you, you grew up and what, what, what shaped the pre 30 year old Ray and well, who you were and, and what sort of, tell me, let's walk into the, the, I guess the crisis, but positive crisis of life when things switched for you. But what was life growing up all about? And what were you? Well, it's, it's, two different, it's, it, it's two different perspectives, right? Because now like, okay, so remember I said I'm 50, right? So different, different perspectives from different times. Now looking back, we would say, Oh, it was a crisis. But at the time it was like, everybody was kind of living the same lifestyle. I was, <laughs> I, you know, it, it basically, you know, I was smoking a pack a day. I was drinking all the time, partying, um, you know, barely, uh, you know, attending school, but not present, quote unquote. Mm. I think the biggest thing for me was, um, we, we grew up in a small town, loved it. Amazing. Uh, we had an amazing childhood, my brother and I, you know, and, and, um, my brother was a smoker too. You're friends with my brother. He was a smoker, mm. unhealthy guy, but he, he earlier on got into like earlier on, I mean, earlier on than me, uh, after high school, got into um, running and, and riding his bike and climbing and all these things. And he, he basically transformed himself, right? Mm-hmm. At a time when that stuff was like, you know, it was, it was popular, but it wasn't like it is today, right? This is like early 90s, late 80s, whatever, you know, that time frame. Mm-hmm. And so he's doing all these amazing things. And I'm kind of paying attention, but I'm not. And I, and I also was at a, a point in my life where I was very unsatisfied. But I, I think I didn't. At, at the time, you know, when you're, when you're mired down in negativity, you don't realize how negative it is. Like I always tell people when I was smoking a pack a day, I got used to being unhealthy. So I did not know what feeling healthy felt like anymore. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because your yeah. norm, your, your baseline is like your lungs are filled with smoke. So at any rate, I, um, you know, just couldn't, I just bounced around, um, you know, and just wasn't finding what it was that I wanted and really sort of having this negative vibe about myself. And also was a guy backgrounder that feared like full on anxiety with gym class. I hated phys ed mm-hmm. and I hated anything to do with it. I hated anything to do with throwing a ball or catching something. Cause that's just not what I do. I was never any good at it. Mm-hmm. And so you know, right away, you know, from that start point perspective, I will never be a sporty guy. You know what I mean? Like that's mm-hmm. just like not even on the periphery. So fast forward and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm heading towards 30 and I've got my younger brother who's doing all these really cool things and he's changed physically completely. He's confident in the things he does. It was all of the amazing things that, that one would want. Perhaps some of us would want. And, it was the things that I wanted, 
but mm. I didn't know it for sure, but I was inspired by what he was doing. And I thought, geez, if I could just feel a little bit like he did, just a tiny bit, I think my life would be different. And that single thought set in motion what would be, you know, the rest of my life that would take me to today. And, and you know, I, I get asked a lot because, you know, I've done, you said before, 14,000 kilometers I've ran in deserts. That doesn't include all the unsupported treks in the Arctic and ski and everything else, fat bike. And I'll tell you, the hardest thing I ever did was quit smoking, dude. I thought it was so hard. I've, I've given presentations and people are like, big deal. I quit smoking in like a day. And I'm like, that's really good for you. But for me, it was monumental effort because I loved smoking. I really did. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine having a pint of Guinness or a, a coffee without a pack of smokes. I mean, it just, it just, you know, that was my yeah. lifestyle, yeah. right? And so to give that up, it took me like, three years of trying and not going to get done. And eventually on new year's Eve, 99, I smoked my last cigarette, you know, then things would change permanently after that. Cause I would dabble <laughs> in the things my brother was doing, but nothing would stick. Right. So I made that move. Right. Well, that was the, that was the thing. What were you doing professionally in that time frame? Like what was your, your vocation, so to speak? Well, I bounced around from one thing to the other. I mean, nothing really professional. There was no profession. You know, I went to I went to community college and, and dropped out, right? Like, I didn't complete um, my studies. I think I'm missing a few credits. I don't even remember. And um, so I did nothing with with any of that. And and uh, I we grew up on a farm, John, like a hobby farm. And we had horses and all that stuff. And I eventually, you know, I, I, that became my thing. You know, we rode horses a lot. Then I was a, uh, like a professional horse trainer for a number of years. I was even in Texas for a year off and on doing that, working on a ranch, but nothing like that. I was, um, truly passionate about. I were, I did all kinds of odd jobs, you know, and it's just nothing, nothing. Went now, now when John did this life change and he became this, this athlete that he did, he also became, he changed careers and he became a trainer, like a personal trainer. And the thing that I thought that was so cool, because I'd never heard of a personal trainer. And the thing that I thought was so cool about that is he was taking the enthusiasm for the things he was passionate about and giving it to other people. And I, and I, um, as an observer, I'm thinking, and you know this from what you do professionally, that, I mean, really, it's not that's such a great thing to be able to do. Like you, you know, like mm-hmm. to, to change someone else's outlook or perhaps on how they feel physically whatever is a really cool thing. And so I thought, yeah, I want to do that too. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of followed in his path. I began, and you know, what's so interesting about this whole process, 2000 onward is I realized in making these changes in my life, following in my brother's footsteps and then taking off into this other world of endurance that I got into, I was a voracious learner. I had this huge appetite for learning yet. I was the guy that in school was like, ask. <laughs> F's and D's. Like if I made it to a C dude, it was a cause for celebration. Right. And so I, but I, I, cause I just didn't want to learn. I just had no appetite for it. But now when it's things that I'm passionate about, I'm like reading books on physiology and, and, you know, really getting into it because I became passionate about it. That, you know, you learn things that way in that process, right. And you apply it forward into, into everything else you do in life. Let's let's unpack that that small period or that big period where you're making that transition a little bit. What what gets you past the barrier? And 
and make and allows you to finally stop smoking and actually take the steps you needed to take what what when you look back at that what really pushed you over that edge i i really think i mean you know this is this is going on 20 years right but i really think it was a realization with the whole new millennium coming and and, and you know everything else that this was the time it was now or never and it, we, without sounding over dramatic, because I don't want it to be that, but just realistically, I looked at that date, New Year's Eve '99, mm. as an opportunity to really give it a shot. You know, things we always want to have these awesome, amazing stories of <laughs> of you know the turmoil and and trauma and what we go through and then we overcome. But the reality is, in everyday life, people go through hard shit. And the most difficult things that we face in our lives and challenges are very individual. They are relative to the person who's living them. You can't explain to someone else how you feel personally. And what may be uh, very traumatic and challenging for one person may be nothing for another person. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for me in that time and in that headspace that I was in, it was kind of like, well, I mean, seriously, I can't go any lower than I am now. So what the hell? <laughs> Right. And it was kind of like that sort of a perspective. Yeah. And I was like, I'll just give this a shot and see what happens. And I think, um, well, I know from experience that when you jump off that edge, if you're willing to take that first step, which I'll tell you what, I was so risk adverse for the thir- first 30 years of my life. I was afraid of trying anything new or anything that was out of my comfort zone of the of the, you know, fear that I was living in because I massive uh, fear of failure, right? Mm-hmm. And failure, I'm talking like the most minimal amounts of failure. Again, other things that people would be like, big deal. But I was mm-hmm. so afraid of failing at anything. And then afraid of what others would think if I failed at that thing, right? Mm-hmm. So I never even tried. And what's, what's ironic about this whole story is where I'm at now, I don't give a shit what anyone thinks. I go for it, right? <laughs> like, I mean, obviously... You know, I, within reason, I don't. I, I try not to be a tool in the things that I choose to do and in pushing the risks. But I think first about is this something that I really want to go after? Is this something that I really want to do? And if it's not negatively, obviously impacting anyone else, if it's a positive, net positive impact, I'm going after it. Mm-hmm. And I just, I don't worry. Like you know, this latest expedition in Kamchatka, we went after it. Mm-hmm. Huge, huge risks. Maybe we make it. Maybe we don't. But I'm not going to worry about the maybe we don't. You know, I'm going after it. And lo and behold, we didn't make it. But still, it was going after There was the barrier of fear to going after the things that I really want in life or the things that I really want to try and do. That barrier of fear has been removed hmm. from experience now, you know? Yeah, that's amazing. Take me back to when, like, how do you go from, take me through the, the few little steps. It's really for the listener to, to hear how you incrementally went through this process a little bit, but you know, obviously you start in the year 2000. How, how does that go from, okay, I'm quitting smoking and I'm starting to do some fitness to now I'm doing ultra marathons and big, big events. Well, like, to, to back up to 90, 1997, I decided I'm going to do the things my brother does, right? So obviously when you go out with him and you try to run, you can't keep up because you're smoking. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would go and I would, try to get healthy and I would try to do the things he'd do and then I still smoke. And then this went on for a couple of years. Then I said to everyone around me, I quit smoking. And then as soon as you're at a party and you're drunk, you're smoking the half finished cigarettes that are left in the ashtray. Someone else's, <laughs> right? Because you're desperate. 
So then you're doing that for a while. And then, you know, then you finally stick to your guns and then like 99 years, 99, make the, make the leap. I'm going to do this thing. Wake up on January 1st, 2000. And of course my generation thought the world was going to end. It did not on January 1st, 2000. Right. So I wake up and, um, still have, you know, cigarettes laying around the house, had half a pack from the night before, not finished. Right. I smoked my last cigarette, but I didn't finish the pack. And I carried those around for me with me for the first week. And it was to tempt myself to want to take one. And because I wanted to know that at this baseline, I could control this thing in my life. Like I was out of control and everything else, but I wanted to know and prove to myself that I could control one thing. And I believe in karma, dude, in a big way. I believe if you really put your energy out there and you aren't expecting something amazing in return, like if you just put it out there and you're doing the best you can, eventually something good's going to come of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I just, I just was like, into that moment and that I was going to really try and do this thing. And my brother, you know, uh, again, still doing all the cool stuff that he was doing. Uh, we started doing stuff again and getting outside and it just, it was a logarithmic effect. It was like, I pushed the needle that day when I did that and things just started to change. I mean, I was, I, because of that one thing, I thought, well, okay, now I actually feel good. Like within weeks, I started feeling better. I'm smoke-free, completely smoke-free, for sure, legit this time, right? And I, then I'm eating healthier. And then I'm learning more about all – and then I'm becoming passionate about becoming a personal trainer or enhancing what I've already learned. And I'm actually living the, what it means to be a trainer. You know what I mean? Not mm -hmm. pretending and then doing some strength training programs and then going and grabbing a smoke outside, right? But mm -hmm. actually like – really into it. And one thing leads to another. Then I, I become passionate about mountain biking and I realize that I've got this same genetic makeup that my brother does, uh, to do long bouts of endurance, you know, that, that all of a sudden I'm reborn right in the span of just a few years, 2000 to 2001, 2002, I'm getting stronger all the time. Every time I go out and ride my bike, I get stronger. Every time we go climbing, I get stronger. Every time I lift a weight, I get stronger. It's because I was actually treating my body well. Mm -hmm. And then that, that every day that that happened removed a, a, a limitation, a layer of limitation in my mind that I might have. Like it started to say to me, Hey, maybe, maybe, maybe I can do more shit than I think I can, you know, like mm -hmm. maybe I can do harder stuff than I think I can. And I started racing mountain bikes. I started doing 24 hour solos. I was adventure racing. I was doing well in all these sports, you know? And then I read an article in 2003 about ultra marathons and my brother, a phenomenal runner and me, I'd ran a handful of times uh, with him or in preparing for an adventure race, but no serious running really. Uh, I never ran in a, in a road race of any kind or an organized running event, event of any kind. And I read an article about um, a race that takes place in the Yukon, a hundred mile running race, 160 kilometer running race. So I thought, this is amazing. How do these people do this? And I really wanted to know what made them different, both physically and mentally and emotionally um, from me. Because I thought I was living a pretty rad life at this point. Like I'm doing stuff that's way out of my comfort zone. And, but these people are taking it to another level. So I entered the race. I, I mean, I, it was just like I automatically did it. I just, I'm going to try this. And I spent every dollar I had on the entry fee. I had no money in those days. And everything I had, I had friends that helped me to get out there with the plane tickets and 
everything else. Against all odds, dude, I didn't just finish that race. I won it. And I'd never won anything like that in my entire life. And I remember thinking when I crossed that finish line that human beings underestimate themselves physically, mentally, and emotionally. And I, it was like so clear to me, as corny and as whatever, motivational or whatever you want to say, as Anthony Robbins infomercial as that sounds, that's how I felt. Like it was, there was complete clarity on that day that I should not, again, have been able to do this. What I just achieved, if you looked at my sports pedigree, that this, this doesn't make sense. You know, and I, granted, I was a very strong mountain biker and a good climber, ice climber with my brother and stuff like that. Uh, running, this was, this was new. You know, I never ran hundred miles ever, you know, mm-hmm. and, 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 and it, it infused in me a confidence and a philosophy that running would become my greatest teacher because running through the sport of running, I would learn things about myself and go on to learn things about the world that I never thought possible. And that one race led to it. So I I had no idea how I did it. Right. So I get to the end of this finish line. There's no pain in my body. I was totally in the zone after about the halfway point. I mean, it's a long story, but being in that process and getting into that point where and athletes will understand this and people that love books, here's the, here's the analogy I always use that people that love books or love to read. When you get into a character in a book and you're so re, you're so intent and one chapter flips after another and you look up at the clock at two hours and evaporate. And you're like, how the hell did that happen? Cause I'm sitting at the office during work, you know, uh, the work day. And it's like the clock's going in reverse. It's like, we're slowing time and speeding it up depending on, how focused we are on something. Right. Mm-hmm. So I totally understood the athlete zone. I think I just didn't know that that's where I was in the Yukon, but that happened to me. I kind of slipped into it because I almost gave up during this race. It became so hard and something drove me forward and said, don't give up. Just go down this trail as far as you can. And I emptied my head of everything else. and was totally focused on going as far as I could in this race and when I could no longer take a step forward and I was, that's it, I'm out. I hopefully would learn what these other people learned about themselves in doing this race so many times that others have done it. What, what was it that they learned in challenging themselves right to the limit? So I knew I had to push myself right to that limit. And in pushing myself right to that limit, I sort of surpassed it. Mm-hmm. And I'm in this crazy zone, get to this finish line, you know, finish the race, win the race. And then all the pain comes back and all the pain comes back into my body that was gone during the race. And I'm like, how, how did I do that? And so the only way I was going to figure out how I did that was to continue doing ultra marathon because how I felt crossing that finish line is how I wanted to feel every day for the rest of my life, no matter what it was I was doing. And so how am I going to bottle that up so that I can use it every day? Well, I got to learn about it. And the only way I'm going to learn about it is to do these ultra marathons. So I started going around the world, doing all the toughest races I could find and competing in them and sometimes winning, occasionally not finishing, but I was learning incredible things about myself over those next few years. Hmm. What, um, what is the difference in the feeling of winning or, or placing in a, in a place that quote unquote is respectable for you and not finishing what, what happens in your head after that in the debrief of that? What do you learn in that? Well, you know what, when I, I, so I DNF'd an ultra marathon that I had 
been excited to do for a number of years. Um, and previous to that, I had won uh, a, a pretty big race. And um, I left that race thinking, wow, you know, I've only been at this for a year and a half, two years. Maybe this isn't my thing. I mean, it was an implosion. Like I was on the ground, passed out, wrapped out the whole nine yards, right? Mm-hmm. And I so dehydrated. And I'm thinking, maybe, maybe I'm not cut out for this stuff. And a friend of mine called uh, after this race and had heard that I completely DNF implosion and said, um, you know, dude, you love the desert so much. Why don't you go back and do another race there? There's a really big one coming up in Egypt. Why don't you give it a try? And I was like, I don't know. I'm thinking about just quitting running and going back to mountain biking. Like, no, no, no. Give it a try. Give it a try. And so I did. I entered it. I won it. I won that race and the next two races that I entered. And they were desert races. And I think that what I realized in that moment, I always take something from every single race that I've done. I think I learned more from not finishing that race than I ever did winning a race, other than the first one in the Yukon. The Yukon taught me to never underestimate myself ever again, right? But in all the other ones, I think really the DNF taught me to not overestimate my ability. Don't think ever you've got it all figured out because you never do, you know? Mm -hmm. And life is about learning it. Again, all these corny things that we hear are actually real. I mean, it's real stuff. And so to never stop, never stop the desire or cease the desire to want to learn more about what it is that I'm doing and never for a moment, let your accomplishments pollute your judgment on who it is that you are. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you, you really can't, you can't ever let it go to your head for more or less. Right. Because then that starts closing doors mm-hmm. automatically. Mm-hmm. So we end up running across the Sahara, the whole thing, 7,500 K. Right. And in that, which was such a massive, expedition and 111 days, an average of 70 K a day, six countries that we ran across in that time, all of those lessons previous were magnified because just to get through it and it transcended for all three of us, what we physically thought was possible. And when I left that expedition, I knew that the greatest lesson that I would take from that expedition is that it wasn't me that was capable of extraordinary in their lives. It's human beings in general, really that it didn't come down to, yeah, I mean, part of it for sure. Our genetic capability, running across the Sahara desert. Yes. Okay. We were hardwired to do it physically, mentally, emotionally, whatever. But what running the Sahara, the documentary and the, and the run, the expedition itself taught me was that every person on this planet is capable of their own version of extraordinary. Like, and it goes back to our very first couple of sentences that you got one kick at the can. You got to figure out what it is that you're passionate about and what it is that drives you. Maybe it is running across the Sahara. I don't know, but maybe it's creating great art. Maybe it's being a successful business person. You know, I speak all over the world at, um, for corporate events and I'm really lucky. I've been able to meet some really cool people over the years and, um, learn from them. And something that's really interesting is that in a lot of these businesses, a lot of the people that I meet, people that are, you know, at the, they, they've reached that sort of point in their career where they're like, they're there. They're, they've achieved their version of success. Okay. Cause everybody's version of success is completely different. What I notice about these people that are like right up there is there's a humbleness to them. 
and there's a, there's an accessibility to them. They always remain accessible. They're not stuffy and, uh, you know, they're not jerks. They're like, they're more down to earth than, than other people that I've met, let's say. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's because in the process of the pursuit of what it is that they wanted to achieve, they've realized that in life, it's so important to be able to share the things that we learn about ourselves, but also, um, like I said a few minutes ago, not let it go to your head and mm-hmm. keep the, if the in the pursuit of what it is that you're trying to achieve, keep an open mind, you know, and keep learning. That's uh, very powerful. I want to play off of that a little bit in the sense that um, I, I was actually speaking on the weekend and a, a friend of one of the, it was a sort of a culmination of um, the different experiences I've pulled from the podcast over the last year from the different people I've talked to. And one of the gentlemen who's very successful in performance said that accomplishments are not the same as success. And then we talked about, um, and I've ta- I talked about this concept that I learned a little while ago in, in some mindset work that I did around the difference between object referral and self-referral. An object referral being that people become very possessed about achieving things, uh, getting the medal, getting the, the job, the, th- you know, the house, the car, all this kind of stuff. And, and, the, and instead of being connected to self and the process of self self-growth and, and, you know, growing within the context of what you do. And in listening to you, what I'm hearing is somebody that um, has taken these, these monumental things that they've gone after, but has been connected to the process of their own personal growth through it. And maybe not perfectly throughout it, but maybe you can talk about that a little bit about connecting well, to the process of what you do versus just, you know, okay, I, here, I got to do this and I'm going to get it done. And then I move to the next thing kind of thing. Okay. So here, let me throw this at you. Remember when you were a kid, did you ever go on road trips with your family? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So you're yeah. going on a road trip, even now, even in high school, like you're going to a, like see guns and roses in Toronto, right. Or wherever. And you're going to drive there. So mm-hmm. it's like six hours, right. Yeah, you're stoked about the concert, but you're really stoked about the road trip, right? It's always about the road trip. The road trip's fun. <laughs> you know, when you go in, and because and, and you're, you're going to stop at those rest things on the side of the 401 or whatever and, and, and eat junk food and all the rest of it. And so that journey, right, that journey is an expedition for me. It's the pieces in the middle that really are the exciting part. It's the little components that are really the exciting part and the part that drives me, the preparation, getting the right gear, the whole process. When I get to the end of the expedition, yeah, it's great, but it's like 10% of it for me. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not really about completing this and then moving on to the next one. For me, it really is the process that I'm in, I be, I'm very present in the process. Mm-hmm. It, you know, in, in, think, of, think of life being the road trip. The road trip's life. The destination is you're laying on your deathbed. Right. Mm-hmm. And what are you going to do? You're going to look back at the whole road trip and say, wow, you know, that was, and you know, you're thinking and you're reminiscing on the road trip. Yeah. We yeah. stopped in at Tim Hortons and got like these massive coffees. Right? So it's like you, <laughs> that's sort of what you're thinking about. Right. Yeah. And so that's the way I, that's the analogy that I drive in, in my life. And I think that the excitement comes from the process. It's like, um, you know, it's like, uh, 
NHL hockey players, right? As they're working their way up through the ranks and they're playing in OHL, I, I'm not a big hockey fan, so I'm probably going to say something wrong here. But <laughs> or you use basketball. I know more about basketball. So, it is. so, you know, you watch NCAA ball. It's crazy how fast that ball is, right? Because everybody's hungry. Everybody's fighting. Everybody's like so passionate about what they're doing. Mm-hmm. The destination might be the NBA, maybe not. But everybody's like just living it, right? Mm-hmm. And so you know, in that process becomes, comes some of your greatest performances. Mm. Greatest performances aren't really at the end, you know, no matter what it is that you're doing in life. Yeah. That's beautiful. Um, I want to um, weave into this a little bit of understanding of team versus individual. And if we go back to your race across Sahara with Kevin and Charlie, um, you know, you, you, I watched that movie and you're three very different people. And so when you go into a, something like this, obviously there's three different drivers for three different people. Um, tell me about how you, how do you trust your teammates? What creates that? And then, you know, how do you deal with those differences in how everybody deals with different cir- circumstances and their trials and tribulations while you're dealing with your own trials and tribulations, if you know what I mean? Totally. So present day, I mean, I, I do a couple of expeditions. I, I do solo projects and I, and I've been doing a few expeditions with, um, Italian explorer, Stefano Gregoretti. He doesn't speak English, like a fluent English. And I speak no Italian other than when I attempt to make up words in Italian. And sometimes I get them right. It's the craziest thing. But at any rate, we, we we're able to riff off of each other and know what each other's thinking because we're so in sync. Right. Mm-hmm. So I align myself that I'm uh, with people that I'm totally in sync with. That's number one, mm-hmm. but backing up for, and that comes from experience that's mm-hmm. learning, you know? So when I went to the South pole 2009 unsupported, that was a three person team. Also, all we did was laugh the entire way to the South pole. I and mean, we had a hell of a good time, me and my <laughs> two buddies. Right. And it was hard for sure, but it wasn't the hardest thing I've done. And we had an amazing time together running the Sahara, Backing up another layer. I'd done ultra marathons with these guys before. And I very much, the older I get too, I accept the way others are. You can't, on a team, force your impression of how you want people to be. It's never going to work. People have to be who they are. And you have to be able to look at others on your team and see what those strengths are. Like, see what the good parts are. The really the parts that you good there is no good or bad but the parts that you can align yourself with more easily those are the things you look for in the other person whether it's humor whether it's that person's analytical thinking on an expedition whatever it is mm-hmm. and instead of it being sort of three different people you actually end up becoming almost like one unit it's very strange but over 111 days like it was Sahara you move as one you move as one unit. And it's a really, it's a really interesting, um, thing. Have you ever heard of the, um, they call it fourth, third man or fourth man syndrome. Have you ever heard of this? No. So when you're on really long expeditions sometimes, and I've had this happen before, and I had this happen when we were in Kamchatka this time with Stefano and I, we'd be skiing along you know, and there'd be no communication for hours because the wind is up and you're skiing along. And I'm thinking, okay, Stefano's behind me. I wonder where that other guy is. Right. <laughs> and there is no other guy. There's only two of you, <laughs> but for a brief moment, you feel like there's another person on that expedition with you. 
Hmm. And I've had that happen a couple of times. I've read about it on other expeditions. When you get really, when you're out there for a really long time, you're really tired, you could swear there's this other teammate that you have that's not actually there. Hmm. And what I think part of that is, is you become so gelled as one that you almost reference that in the case of this expedition, the one in Russia where there was only Stefano and I, I'm thinking there's a third person. That person, third person, you're projecting Stefano, all, but you see yourselves as one. Do you dig what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, like, I'm seeing him and me as one unit. So that that's where you want to sort of be with teammates. And I think that a great team is one that can communicate with each other honestly. I'm not saying say the things that you think I want to hear, say anything. And really there's no, there's an indifference of emotion when it comes to um, egos and everything else. And that's, that's the way the best teams work and roles. I mean, everybody's got to have their, they got to have their, their gig and you don't do their gig and they don't do your gig. Right. Mm-hmm. What have, what have you learned about humanity in the process of doing these projects with other people over time? Well, the number one thing that I've learned, whether it's people with projects or people that I've met around the world in the remotest parts of the world and, and in countries like Libya or, or, uh, I mean, a million countries is that uh, people are good. People are, people are, we all laugh at exactly the same things, mm-hmm. you know, that there's a baseline part of us that likes to laugh mm-hmm. and, and, and likes to be amused and I think that um, humor is one of the most critical, uh, it's a, it's, I guess it's not an emotion, is it? but it's the most critical pieces to the fabric of who we are as human beings, mm. you know? And I, and I think that any time that we can have that or invest humor into our lives and laugh, it can diffuse a really bad situation. Mm. It can be a currency. Uh, it can be, uh, there's just so many things. So I, I think that that's, you know, probably not the answer you're looking for, but that is a critical part of humanity that I've learned. And the other thing, of course, which is my life philosophy is that we truly worry too much about what other people are going to think. You can do that, see that through social media. We truly are, um, too, I, I think we have become too afraid to try new things and we underestimate what we are capable of doing. Mm-hmm. We, all of us are guilty of that. We are all guilty of underestimating what we can actually do in our lives. Hmm. How do you, with that in mind, like how do you conceptualize a project? Like how do you say, this is something I'm going to do and is doable because it's interesting. I was listening to um, a presentation a few years ago by a guy named Lori Scresland, who's was one of, yeah, I know Lori. Great guy. Okay. Great guy. So, so Lori was talking about uh, climbing Mount Everest and, you know, at this Mm -hmm. one point, you know, jumping across a crevasse with an ice, an ice axe and sort of landing. I know that's such a crazy story. Crazy story. <laughs> and I asked him, I, why I was hanging out with him. And he told me that story. I said, that is insane. <laughs> so I said to him, what, what differentiates something from being foolhardy from being 
just a little edge over crazy, so to speak. And how do you differentiate those things? And I, for, and I said, from my pers- perspective, it is perspective. It's e- each increment that you rise on the next level to do the next thing. You sort of have this perspective that it's doable. <clears throat> so I'm curious, you know, how, how you look at, you know, okay, I want to do this and go, that's not insane. And even you just said, which was kind of cute, you know, what he did with us crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So there's a crazy yeah. in your well, mind. <laughs> so where think that? about this. Think about this, Scott. Think about this. We have cars now. We have cars now that can drive themselves. Right? You hop in. I mean, the technology's there. Let's not talk about the crashes and all that stuff. But there are cars now, self-driving cars. Mm-hmm. Back up to 1969, when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin uh, and, and etc. were headed to the moon. Mm-hmm. The computing power. Somebody's going to call me on this, but the computing power of the, ca- the space capsule and the lunar module was minimal. I believe it's kilobytes. Okay. Like a couple of photos on your iPhone. <laughs> Those guys piloted, they piloted the lunar module. They left the space capsule, right? Flew down to the moon and had to figure out how to launch that thing off the moon, get it back around to the space capsule and dock it, right? Then crawl back in and then fly home through the atmosphere, return to the atmosphere, right? The amount of thought and, and gut instinct that you know those guys were going on to be able to do that is extraordinary. Just think of just the processes. Imagine being there and think, okay, well, I'm 5 billion miles from home and now I got to take off from the moon. Maybe I'm never getting home. I mean, it's like, you know, more or less they had a one way ticket is what they were thinking. Right. So <laughs> I'm not saying anything that I do is even close to that, but when I'm on an expedition, like we were just in Russia and I have to make a call. It's everything that I've done before. All the mechanics of decision-making, like you said, everything that I've experienced, the successes, the failures, that in a moment, in a split moment, the decision comes to my mind and I don't ignore it. And it's a, it's a combination of in my head and in my gut. And I know right away, yay or nay. I know right away and I don't change it. The first thought, when it comes into my head, go for it. Then I go for it. Mm-hmm. If the thought comes into my head, don't do this that we're not doing it. And I, even though I'll try to talk myself out of it after the initial thought was, this isn't right. Don't do it. And I won't. And, and, and it's the harder part is not coming to that assertion or that, uh, that, 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 um, decision. Mm-hmm. The harder part is stick into my decision because I'll try to talk myself out of it or I'll try to talk myself into it. Right. right. So Namibia last year, 1,850 kilometers, Stefano and I are running. And we're headed north, and I'm typically the navigator on the expeditions, and, and, and I'm, we're heading north, and we come to a canyon. And the run would be 190 kilometers to get around this canyon. We were a total, I said, 1,850K. So it was going to be 190K around this canyon, or 32 kilometers across the canyon in a straight line. And we're standing up over the edge, we're looking down practically vertical, like terrifying. It was like looking out over the Grand Canyon. And I don't like exposure and I don't like height. And the logistic guys, I said, why aren't we going across the canyon? So, because nobody's been across the north end of this canyon. And I said, well, so we planned our route. We got 190 going this way or 30 going this way. I could save basically 100 miles, 160K if we go straight across. I'm pretty sure that's what the numbers were. If we go straight across this canyon, 
And he's like, yeah. I looked at the maps. I looked at the contour. I, lo- I weighed the decision. I looked down over the edge. I could see pools of water in the distance with binoculars. I don't know how long that water was standing there, but I knew that I'd be able to filter it. And I made a decision instantly based on that, that the risk was worth taking. And so we descended down to that canyon. We drank putrid water down there. It was disgusting, but we, we filtered it. It was well over 50 degrees Celsius. The terrain was horrible, but we got through it in the day. It was close. It was really close, but we got through it. We scrambled out the other side of this canyon, and I was satisfied with the decision that we'd made. Fast forward to Russia. We're on this latest expedition. We have been un- unsupported for 19 days. We've been on expedition, beating our bodies up through deep snow, open rivers, hauling 100 pounds of gear over mountain paths. And we get the word that in this last part of the expedition from these hunters, and after dealing with open rivers and, and, and sketchy ice, hunters told us, the reality is, guys, moving forward, all the rivers are open. And right away, I knew. It just came to my head, don't go. You can't do it. It's too dangerous. And I knew, and then after that was in my mind, I got the full skinny on everything. Like I, but I knew. I knew from the way those guys told us and their knowledge of the land and everything that we had been through, that the likelihood of finding any safe passage on ice was minimal at best. And we'd be so remote, way off in these mountains when we would go to cross these rivers that we'd end up having to call for rescue risking other people's lives. It all, it was like, it was like, it went through my mind that quickly. I played all those. It it just was on, I'm on autopilot. And I knew they said it. It was instant in my mind. We cannot move forward. And then I was, it was proven that we could not move forward. So that's how I do that. That's crazy. Did I go off subject? I may have gone off subject a little no, bit. You're there, right. but... <laughs> What's the closest you've ever been to pulling the pin on something, but then didn't? You were like on the edge, and then you just said, no, we're doing this. Uh, Gobi Desert, running solo, 2013. I ran over 2,000 kilometers, somewhere between 2,000 and 2,300 kilometers across the Gobi, east to west. And in the last part, I was so injured. I was so injured because I'd been leaning into these windstorms and uh, le- like leaning, and I tore all my my intercostal muscles. My uh, QL was tweaked because of uh, my transverse, my obliques, everything on the one side were just cooked, <laughs> and uh, I could barely. I walking was hugely painful. Breathing was painful, and I reached this last community before going out into what would be a very remote area. And I was running at that point about 60 K a day average, and I was getting resupplies every 20 K or so. And I realized that over those last 200 or 300 kilometers that was left in this expedition, if I was going to go that I have to be, it was like a, like a four by four track out from this last community that went right to the edge of these mountains. And we were going to stay on this four by four track for the end of this expedition. I was no longer going to be, Completely cross country. As it turned out, I would be cross country through the middle of the night in this area where these wolves were. It's a long story. But at the time, that's what I was thinking. We're going to be on this road. So with my crew, I thought, okay, guys, go 10K at a time and I'll stop and I'll see you and I'll get water and then go 10 and I'll get water and, I'll get, and I'm just going to walk. But that night before we left, I thought, you know what? When I get, I'm in so much pain. When I get up in the morning, I'm just going to tell them, let's, let's just stop here. And I realized... We're so close to the end. 
but I just, I'm in too much pain. I can't do this. And it's just not working. And I just cannot picture myself pushing through this. I just, I just could not visualize them. I usually have visualized myself three days ahead of time, you know, and I just couldn't see myself there. But I, 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 so I had my, put my shorts on, thought in my mind, got up the next morning. We were staying in the small community at this time. And I walked downstairs, ready to say to the team, okay, guys, here's the deal. We're not going to go any further. Let's just call it quits. And the words just wouldn't come out of my mouth. They wouldn't come out of my mouth. And the crew took off. And I was like, oh, great. Now I got to walk at least 10K. I'll walk to the vehicle and then I'll tell them that we're going to pull the plug. And then by the time I got there, I forgot or something because, you know, I'm forgetful, whatever. I just kept going. And then, you know, 24 hours, like, because I walked nonstop. I just wanted to get it over with. After oh, we no sorry we spent a night then went, I went twenty four hours straight and we were done. Wow. So I mean it was so close it was so good but that there's been many times that it's been close mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm gonna read something to you now which I do in all my podcasts I I found a book a number of years ago called The Day You Were Born and it's uh, basically a combination of astrology and numerology this woman Linda Joyce wrote it. And I kind of found my purpose in it so each each birth date is sort of combined this astrology and numerology piece and then they come at you with a purpose and then a little bit of background and there's usually a saying that goes with it so you were born february 11th and uh, your purpose is to integrate your extreme nature which keeps you either isolated or and alone or losing yourself in your quest to right injustice and save lost souls only a life lived in service to others is worth worth living albert einstein Loners by heart, Aquarius too, still manage to do their share of giving. They need to learn to open up a little more and trust their instincts to tell them whom to love, whom to help, and whom to leave alone. They project their own feelings onto the the wounded. They need to heal themselves first. Aquarius twos struggle with mood swings and depression. They are attracted to the eccentric and have a strange sense of humor. They are defiant, a bit rebellious, and very persistent. The danger here lies in attaching themselves to the wrong person. They need to use discrimination before letting their passionate nature rule. They're sensitive and psychic. They need to trust their inner voice and direct their obsessive nature towards something positive. Sound like you? Yeah, I mean, I suppose. I mean, there's a lot there that, uh, you know, it applies, right? But... uh, you know, yeah. I, I, I think so. You know, I yeah, read me uh, September 28th. Tell September me, uh, 28th. Okay. Let's see if any of that applies. September 28th. Okay. Oh, it's going to take me a couple of seconds to find September 28th here. Why? Who's September 28th? Your, your wife? No one. I'm just throwing the date out there to see if okay. it's just random. You know what oh, I, mean? I see. Yes. So to take your own path, balancing your need for freedom with your desire for love. Let man be noble, generous, and good. For this alone distinguishes from all beings known to us. Goeth. Goeth knew that to resolve conflict, one must surrender to his most noble side. Goals should have a higher purpose. In Libra, the fruits of fame and fortune leave a bitter taste. They demand too much of one's truth and give little in return. The Libra one must learn to accept themselves and to surround themselves with beautiful art, ideas, and people. So you see that applies to, so, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, you know, look, I, I listen, I dig, I dig all that stuff. And I, and I, you know, I've spent so much time on expeditions and traveling and experienced a lot of weird stuff out there, you know? And so 
for sure there's that that huge spiritual component you know um in, in, that i find in the things that i do and the things that i've witnessed and seen and experienced you know so you know but in this case i mean well, i mean hey yeah it's it's, it's good yeah, it's, it's all good stuff. <laughs> yeah. What? Um, so we've talked about all the easy stuff. What? What changed for you when you became a dad? Oh, it's the greatest thing ever. I mean, for me, you know, and and this is not a uh, like a, some people want to have kids. I have friends that are like having kids. They're so stoked about having kids, and then other people are like, "I don't want to have kids," and I'm like, "That's totally cool. I totally get it." Right? Mm-hmm. But I always knew from the time I was young. Uh, cause I was a babysitter growing up that I just, I've always loved kids. always wanted to be a dad and I just never thought it was going to happen. Um, I just never thought I would ever have my shit together enough, well enough to have a marriage or to meet someone or whatever to have kids. Right. I just never thought I was going to find that right person. And, um, cause I wasn't a right person for anyone. Right. Mm-hmm. And then in having kids, like, Seriously, for me personally, we all have our own thing. For me, it's the greatest thing. <laughs> it's the greatest thing ever. Like number one, Uno in life. It's just so amazing. And I was, you know, it, it, like it's, it's like we, there are genetics. Like there, they, we did that. You know what I mean? Like you're looking at your kids, you go, we did that. I mean, we, they're, they're from us. It's crazy. I mean, they're lives, they're human lives. Like they're, they live, breathe, think do things you see yourself in them sometimes and the things that they do. And, you know, it's a love that you have that you just can't explain, you know? And so for me being a dad, of course there's the ups and downs, right? I mean, there's the early days of the diapers. There's the early days when they're two dimensional, they're not moving around too much, right? And then all of a sudden they're standing up and running and then the older they get, and it just constantly, it, it, it gets better. It changes. I, older they get i mean it's it's an amazing thing i love being a dad i absolutely love it you know and you know what it makes everything else in life better training better because you got to be totally focused on your time you know my wife is a competitive ultra runner she loves to do these ultra runners uh, ultra marathons and she does really well she takes it serious and she's got she works full time so we got to balance the training with, you know, who's, who's doing what with the kids, who's training. And then, and then my daughters, both amazing trail runners, skiers, they like to do all that stuff too. So you got to balance that time too. You want to do things together as a family unit, have your own family adventures. So really everything else I find in my life has become much more focused and uh, organized than I ever was before. Hmm. Tell me what, uh, what you admire most in your brother. I think it has to be his capacity to um, stick to something like resolute. He's completely resolute. That's why he's like such a leader in the industry. Right. And, and the stuff that my brother and his wife Sarah do, I don't even completely understand it. I mean, it's like you go in there, you go to see them and Sarah's doing all this muscle testing and he's telling you got to do this, that, the other. And it's just, it's freaky how much they know, but it's because they, they've refused to do, um, take the easy way that they, they, they refuse to fall prey to any sort of gimmicky, you know, kind of fitnessy things. And they stick to the stuff that's the science of it. And this is how it works. And there's a process and, and it's legit. Everything they do 
um, works, but it's a long process to get to where they are. Mm-hmm. So maybe like, he's like a, he, he was always a good alpinist. So maybe that's where it comes from, right? Like you have to methodically think about where you're going to put that ice axe next. You know, you have to think about the whole, the whole process uh, in learning, right? And what is it that you're going to invest the time in learning? Like, what is the value proposition? Is that is that the best thing to learn, or is the science going to change? Like the coffee thing, good today, bad tomorrow. Good today, bad tomorrow. Like coconut oil, the most frustrating thing on the planet. I mean, I was eating <laughs> coconut oil like crazy. I ate it on my expedition. Then I read an article in the USA Today or one of the newspapers. Coconut oil is going to kill you. Don't eat it anymore. You know, it's not the hell, right? <laughs> so they, they have an ability to, to get through all that and figure out what is, um, what do I need to stick to in the long haul? So I think it's, the, it, it's his resilience and his ability. I admire his ability to stay super laser focused on something. Awesome. What's your mission with impossible to possible? What are you trying to, what are you trying to do with that? Well, Impossible Impossible, so it's a nonprofit organization, and um, I'm a volunteer in it. I started it, and the goal is to take young people, uh, 16 to 21 years of age, and give them an opportunity to go on an expedition, some part of the world, difficult expedition, typically very remote locations, learn about that part of the world, challenge themselves, push themselves, and then share their expedition with classrooms that are following along around the world. And everything we do is 100% free. So the goal is to get these kids at a young age learning and realizing the things that, that I've taken until now to learn. It's never too late, but that's my, that's my goal with impossible possible is to give young people the knowledge of what I've learned now. Cool. So as you said, you only get this one kick at the can and uh, one day it will all end. How would you like to be remembered when, when that day comes? I'm a good dad. Cool. Ray, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for taking an hour with me. And it was nice to finally meet you after hearing so much about you from your brother. And uh, your brother is a good soul and I enjoy his company. And it's been nice to chat with you. Likewise. And, uh, you know, for your listeners, the best way to follow, I have a website. I'm sure you'll put it on the, on the, on, on, you know, when you post the, the podcast, but also I, I, I post everything on a, I have an athlete page on Facebook and I'm on Instagram. So everything goes up there. Yeah. What, what's the your Instagram handle and your Twitter handle? Uh, Instagram is Ray Zahab and Twitter is Ray Zahab. Beautiful. Thank you, sir. All right. Thank you, sir. Have a good Let's rest. Meet you soon. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.